Well, we spoke uh, this morning a bit about manipulation. We talked about how we use manipulation really because we don't have the faith that God will act. And so we feel that we need to act, that we need to manipulate circumstances to get people under our control, to get them to do what we want them to do. And we use various ways of doing that. We can use anger, we can use uh, withdrawal, pouting, our words. We can use deceptive words, manipulative words. But we also mentioned that manipulation is in the kingdom of evil. It is clearly in Satan's kingdom. To manipulate and to control is in Satan's kingdom. God has no desire to control you. He wants you to control you. That's called self-control. That you are under your own control, that you are able to be tempted and say no, that you are coming to him as a relationship with a God of love. You don't have to be manipulated or coerced or begged or paid off to come to him. But Satan, on the other hand, will gladly pay you, control you, addict you, do whatever he has to do to get you to follow him. Well, if God doesn't want to control you, what does he want? He wants to be known. He wants us to take the time and the energy to get to know what he's really, really like. Now, most of us think we know what he's like. We have uh, an idea which generally comes from the template, from the imprint that we got during our childhood, our father or mother. Often it's whichever parent was the worst. That is the one that you use and template and imprint that and say, you know, God's like that. And so many of us find ourselves really running from God or distant from God for many, many years until we, at some point, decide, I need to unwind this theology that I have of what God is like. He's not like my earthly father or earthly mother, who all had flaws, just as we do. He is perfect, he's holy, and we begin to come after him looking for that. And we find that in Jesus. And I want to go to a passage now in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Let's talk about an opportunity or a situation in which Jesus had some pressure put on him. In other words, he faced manipulation and he didn't bow to it. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. 
Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. It's interesting. The world cannot hate you. Is that true of you? Is there something in your life, something that you do, something that you say, that because you worship God, the world has a reason to hate you? What I really want to get out of this passage is why were his brothers, his younger brothers, trying to control him? And I will submit to you that they were actually trying to kill him. We just read that they, were, they knew they were trying to kill him in Judea. And his brothers, his family, was trying, telling him, why don't you go to Judea? Interesting. Interesting to think about why Jesus' own brothers, and they would be younger brothers. He was the firstborn. What do we know about Jesus' brothers? Well, we know uh, that he had four of them. In fact, when he was in Nazareth and uh, was rejected at Nazareth, it was very clear that uh, they said, are not his four brothers, like James and Joseph, Simon and Judah, here with us? And aren't his sisters here among us? So he, he had four brothers and sisters, at least two sisters. So there was at least seven people in this family. And what was it about Jesus' ministry that was bothering them so much? Why were they eager to see him show himself to the world or get killed, one or the other? But we see in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, is this not the carpenter? So Jesus had just gone to Nazareth. And he'd made a messianic claim. And his townsfolk did not take kindly to that. Is this not the carpenter's son? No, another gospel says, is this not the carpenter's son? Mark 6 says, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon. Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Next verse, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not with honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And I love this next phrase, and he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. Now, what kind, of, what kind of unbelief was this? I believe it wasn't this standard unbelief that they didn't have enough information. I believe this kind of unbelief was that they actually didn't want it to be true. I don't want the carpenter from Nazareth to be the Messiah. 
That's not good news to me. And many people who don't want to follow Jesus, I, I often ask them this question, is it good news for you if Jesus is the Messiah? Is, is that good news for you? Is that something that, that you'd like to hear? Or was, it, was it a bit of envy? Is it possible, and this happens in families, it certainly happened in my family, that somebody is getting a lot of attention and the others aren't getting so much attention and perhaps they're suffering because of it. I mean, what is the definition of envy? What, because I believe envy is one of the reasons that actually keeps us sick. It says envy rots the bones. So one of the things that I like to look for in my own life is envy. Very, very subtle. Sometimes I'll see another speaker who's really, really good, great communicator, and something in me says, it just, just irritates me a bit. That's envy. Or you see someone else who, uh, when I was single, I'd see someone else who was married, and I may, that kind of bothered me a bit. Didn't, I wanted a wife. You see, envy is actually looking at someone's virtue and instead of admiring it, you want to destroy it. And that's what we have here surrounding Jesus. We have pure virtue and we have people all around him, including in his family, that want to destroy it. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus call, is in the synagogue now. He's in Galilee. Local hometown crowd. There's a man with a withered hand in the crowd, and he calls him forward. And he looked around at them with anger because they were looking to accuse him if he healed on the Sabbath. They looked around at him in, with anger, grieved. I'm sorry. He looked around at them in anger. By the way, this is the only time in the scripture that we read that Jesus was angry. Most of us think that he was angry when he made the whip of cords and drove the people out of the temple, and that's certainly possible, but it doesn't say he was angry. This is the only time it says he was angry. And it says he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The next verse, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's envy. You look at someone with virtue, and you want to destroy it. I just want to pause for a minute. I just think it's a, a good time just to pause because envy is such a powerful part of our lives. It's actually a huge part of our culture. The whole advertising world is built on getting you to envy what other people have. And so I want to just pause and I want to ask you to ask God, show me, is there anyone that I have been looking on? A neighbor, a colleague, a sibling, Someone who has somehow more than you 
or you feel better than you. Because ultimately envy is, you think it's aimed at the person, but a lot of envy is actually aimed at God because you're saying, God, you are not fair. With what, when you handed out the gifts, you gave them the good stuff and you gave me the garbage. And it will hold back your relationships. It will hold back your success in your chosen career and your ministry. And it, it will destroy your relationships and it will poison your relationship with God and other people. And so I want to pause just uh, for a few moments, 30 seconds or so, and I want to get you to reflect and do a little soul searching now. Is there something or someone in your life and you just need to confess it to God and instead of wanting to take that from them, I want to just pause now and say, why don't we pause and say, God, I admire that in them. Would you give me what they have? If you want it, then you can ask for it, but do not envy it in someone else. It's poison to your relationships. I'm pausing now for a moment. I, I want to continue now talking about Jesus and his relationship with his family. How, what was it like for them? So what is it like to have someone in your family who is famous or infamous, whichever way you want to call Jesus in his public ministry? Because he was loved by many and he was hated by many. And the people who loved him were the poor. They were the outcasts. They were the people with no resources. He was very, very popular among that crowd, among that set. And he was very unpopular among those with resources, among those with any standing, any social standing. Yes, there were a few, Nicodemus perhaps, but most with social standing, with resources, hated him. They wanted to get rid of him, and ultimately they did. And if you think of the society there, the religious administration, sort of like the mafia, they had a form of justice and they kept picking up stones to stone him. Those were not rubber rocks. Those were not plastic stones. They were able, under the Roman rule, to kill people. They could enact their own judgment and justice, and they did. So the Messiah's family is going to attract some attention. What was it like for his brothers to live under that kind of attention? I'll submit to you it wasn't very easy. Because the attention they were getting was a lot of negative attention. In fact, at one point, Jesus' mother and brothers come to, to get him thinking he's insane because of the things that he's doing, because of the crowds that are coming. And I believe it says they heard of the things he was doing and come to get them, came to get him. And I believe it was the authorities that said, you better reign in your son. Anyone who was found to confess Jesus as Messiah was kicked out of the synagogue. And that was socially very important and economically very important to you. What was it like for his mother and brothers to live in his family. Were they harassed? Oh, I think they probably were. Persecuted? How does the mafia treat your family? Are they real kind to them? Do they want to make sure that they succeed in whatever they do? 
What's the first thing they do to get to you? They threaten your family. Did Jesus' four brothers and two or more sisters want to get married? Well, I imagine they did. How easy was it going to be for them to find a suitable spouse, mate? What family is going to want to marry them into Jesus' family when all the religious administration says, these guys are the worst? And by the way, uh, which rabbi is going to marry them in the synagogue? You can understand why Jesus' brothers were saying, if you do these things, what do you mean if you do these things? It says that his brothers and his mother were with him when he made water to wine. So they saw something, but maybe they considered that a bit of a party trick. All these other things, they didn't want to believe the widow's son from Nain was raised. The withered man's hand was healed. He walked on water. They're hearing these stories they don't want to believe. Basically, they want him out of their lives because that's not the kind of Messiah that they want. What do you mean it's not the kind of Messiah they want? Well, if, you're, if the Messiah lives in your home, you would expect to be pretty well off. Things would be going well for you. Was Jesus' family well off? In fact, jo Joseph is conspicuously absent as if he has died. Is that the way a Messiah's family is supposed to be? That your mother's a widow? Oh, and all the brothers are supposed to support her, and Jesus takes off with his own ministry. How is that affecting, affecting the family finances? Yeah, you can start seeing where some of this Grading is coming. The, the brothers are not so excited about his new ministry because the, his messianic claims, which they understood, if you do these things, why are you doing them in secret? Do them openly. The Messiah is supposed to be open. They clearly understood his messianic claim, but they're not buying the Messiah because the Messiah certainly would have tuned up the family a bit. Joseph would probably still be with them. Their family would be set up. They wouldn't be persecuted or harassed. It would be easier for them to marry. Jesus does not bow to family pressure. Not even when it comes from his cousin John, the Baptist, saying, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Because the Messiah is supposed to set the captives free. And what's John? He's a captive. And Jesus says, tell John, the deaf hear, the blind see, the, the poor have the good news preached to them. Oh, and blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. Blessed is he who's not offended by me. I'm not fulfilling all your wishes right now. So Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't bow to family, social, political control. When I was in sixth grade, I was out at recess playing tag with the 
popular group. And just at the bell, the most popular kid in school, he tagged me. Now, as you would imagine, in sixth grade, an argument ensued, whether it was before the bell, during the bell, or after the bell, that he actually touched me. I said it was after the bell. He said it was before the bell. So there was a bit of a disagreement. But being the most popular kid in school, and I'll call him Frank, he marshaled all of the other kids against me, and pretty soon I found myself an outcast. And I remember very vividly, sometime later at another recess, all the kids lined up in a, in a, in a row and they said, one, two, three, we hate you. And I heard all the kids say that to me. And I sort of put a smile on my face and I wandered back inside the school building. That was a public shame. That was rejection. And I determined from that point on that I would make sure I always had friends, that I would do whatever it took to make them like me. And I became a people pleaser. I became very charming. Whatever you wanted was what I gave you so that I never had to feel that pain again. You see, unlike Jesus, I made sort of an inner vow which I have had to repent and renounce and have since gone on to do and to say things that not everyone agrees with to fulfill my destiny. But for that time, because of the pressure, the societal pressure, similar to what Jesus was facing, but I could not receive the shame. And I decided the best way to live my life was to give them what they wanted. You see, if you are a people pleaser, and many of us are, it's likely because there was a time in your life when it was, it was unsafe not to please the people around you. Either the adults around you, your colleagues, your classmates, that you decided to give them what they wanted. And that still continues today. And that may be affecting your health. Certainly is affecting your relationship and can affect your relationship with God. I just want to pause right there and just say, if that any of those things are affecting you, I want to just pause and give you a time to reflect because so many of us are people pleasers. It's worth pausing to talk to God about that. If you are pleasing others instead of pleasing him or preferentially when you know you should say something and you don't, you know you should speak up but you don't because you're afraid of people this may be a good time to repent of that and to renounce. Maybe there's a vow that you made 
at some point earlier that I will do whatever it takes to be popular, to have them love me, to never have to feel that pain again. I'm going to give you a moment now. I want to tell you one more story because there's one other point I want to hit. It's very, very common in families. So sometime after this episode in sixth grade, I think about the time I was in eighth grade, I was, I was not very popular. In fact, I was sort of unpopular. But I noticed that there was a girl who was popular and who I wanted to get her attention. Well, she didn't say hello to me during regular school hours, so I got her telephone number. And what I lacked in popularity, I, uh, I made up for in guts, in chutzpah, in uh, determination. And so I called this girl, I'll call her Sally, and sure enough, she answered the phone. I said, Sally, it's, it's David. David who? I said, you know, I, I say hello to you every day, and I, did, I didn't include the part about her not saying hello to me. But we had a conversation on the phone, and I, I rather enjoyed it. And so I called her again the next week. Sure enough, she answered the phone, took my call, a bit distant, but uh, I had a chat with her and I enjoyed it. I was actually spending time talking with Sally. This was a, a joy to me. And this went on for a month or so, maybe two. I would call her. And then I decided it was time to really push the relationship to the next level. And so when I called Sally, uh, and I was about to hang up with her. I said, Sally, you know, I've been, I've been calling you regularly now. Uh, what I really want is for you to call me. <laughs> and there was silence on the end of the line. And uh, we just uh, hung up. And immediately the phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and it was Sally. And she said, well, you said to call you, so I called you. But what I wanted was not for her to call me because I told her to call me. I wanted her to call me because she wanted to call me, because she thought of me. And I learned an important lesson. That relationship did not last much longer. It was really only a relationship in my eighth grade mind. In Sally's mind, it never was a relationship. But there's a couple of points I want to make from that story. And the first is my use of guilt to try to manipulate Sally into doing what I wanted. Did you catch that? I have been calling you. That's guilt. I want you to call me. Now, Sally didn't ask me to call her. I was doing it on my own free will. But since I had invested so much time, it actually felt like now 
I could call in an obligation. And guilt is one of the ways that we manipulate people. In fact, Jesus' brothers are using it in his case. If you are, go show yourself. This is what you should do. Putting doubt, putting guilt, putting obligation. Now, I believe in relationships that you can ask for what you want. And I tell people when they come to me and ask me, I want to ask you a favor, and I say, you are welcome to ask me for whatever you'd like as long as it's okay with you if I say no. Because many times, when you are asking, it's not okay if that person says no. And you guilt them. And this is very common in families. Oh, you never call anymore. You never come by. You never visit me. I mean, I, I hear this from from friends, from neighbors. We don't see you anymore. Trying to get me to do something that I don't want to do, I don't have time to do, I, don't have, the, I have to reprioritize my schedule to do. But by using guilt, they are manipulating me. And if that people pleaser in me comes out, I will say yes. And I really try not to say yes face-to-face. I usually say, I'll have to think about that, talk to my wife about that, or I'll just smile. It's interesting how you know, because you get this funny feeling that you are being manipulated. It feels like guilt coming at you. And indeed, it works in our society. And it probably works with you as well. Both what you receive And I'm willing to bet that many of us use guilt, not even knowing what we're doing, to get people to come under our control so that they will do what we want them to do, what's good for us. It actually may or may not be good for them. So I'm going to pause now uh, and have you think, are you using guilt in any way for manipulation, to get your way? somehow convincing people what you've invested or what they owe you because of their relationship, because of what this has cost you. I know uh, a 30-year-old man, his parents paid for his Ivy League education, graduate and undergraduate. He talks to them every day. He cannot say no to them. They basically control him because of what they have done for him. Did he ask them to do that? No. They chose to do it, but because they chose, they now use that. Just like I was using my phone calls to say, now you have an obligation to me. You need to do what I want you to do because of what I have invested in you. Are we doing it to our kids, to our parents, to our colleagues, to our siblings? Let's take some moments and think about that. Is there anything we need to repent of or at least recognize so that we can respond as God would want us to, uh, not out of people-pleasing, not out of coercion, but let our yes be yes and our no be no. Let's give you a moment of silence now. I want to conclude now, just giving you a a blessing. Uh, Lord, I thank you for everyone who has come tonight. I ask a blessing on their relationships. I ask a blessing on their relationship with you, ask that we would notice the ways that we are being manipulated and that we manipulate others because manipulation and control 
is from the evil one, and you want nothing to do with that. I ask you to cleanse us from this, that we might have better relationships with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.